Our scripture reading today is from Luke 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Megan. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and welcome to the Brookside campus. And we're starting, uh, really, in a way, continuing a series in the Gospel of Luke. Through Advent, we looked at the birth narratives of Jesus being born in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be continuing on and studying the Gospel of Luke for a good chunk of time this year in 2020. And so today we're going to go back to the very first four verses that you just heard read to kind of set the stage for Luke. And then we'll pick it up in, in chapter three next week after uh, all the birth stories that we looked at during the Christmas season. So as we begin this uh, new study in the Gospel of Luke, I'd love to pray not only just for uh, this time as we're looking at these first four verses, but our time of, of, of looking at the whole Gospel together. So let me pray over us, pray for us the, that this morning. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the one who has spoken the world into existence, uh, that Jesus is the one who upholds all things by his powerful word. And that you have given us uh, your word, you've preserved it, you've recorded it, you've inspired it. Um, I pray now that by the power of your spirit who inspired these words to begin with, that you would bring them to new life in our hearts and minds and in our obedience and love for Jesus today. We pray this. Amen. Well, last year, I started a quest to, to better understand American history by reading a biography of every president starting with Washington. It's going to take me a while, but I just said, I'm going to start with Washington, find a biography, and just, and just read all the way through until I, I get to the, the present day. So, uh, so far, I've made it through Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. I'm in the middle of John Quincy Adams right now. And each of their stories and the people surrounding them uh, and, and what the circumstances of their lives has been fascinating to, to learn about and to gain a deeper understanding, not only of these people, but the time and the world in which they lived. And yet one of the most haunting of them is the life of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and John Meacham's biography is outstanding. And it, it portrays in many ways a person who embodies within himself so many of the deep tensions and contradictions of the founding of our nation. Uh, ones that still persist today, that we're still wrestling with. That Jefferson, the one who penned the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was one who owned and enslaved other human beings and whose wealth and life was made possible by denying them those very unalienable rights. And in 1820, at the age of 83, near the end of his life, Jefferson produced what would later be known as the Jefferson Bible. But it, it wasn't an, an entire Bible. It was uh, an attempt of him to tell the story of Jesus but with removing anything supernatural from the account. He titled it, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. 
And, and listen to how he described this task in a letter that he wrote to John Adams, the other president who was a good friend of his. He, he says, I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter, which is evidently his, meaning Jesus's, and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. And this was the, the result. He kind of copied and, and literally copied and pasted. This is when he actually copied and pasted. That wasn't just a metaphor or something you did on a computer. He literally copied and pasted, cut and pasted uh, into a book from others and rearranged this. Now, I, I think that most of us would probably say, I'm not going to take out the scissors. Like, I'd never slice up my Bible like that. I'd never do that. But in reality, we all have scissors in our hands. When it comes to Jesus and into the Bible and the Gospels, we are all probably more quick and more often, even than we, we realize, to edit Jesus, edit the Gospels, edit the Bible to fit us rather than adjusting, editing, shaping ourselves to fit him. So again, we, we don't go so far as to actually take out a pair of scissors and, and cut out portions of our Bibles. But... Just look, if you're someone who has a, a paper Bible and you underline and, and maybe highlight and write notes in your margin, I just encourage you, flip through your Bible and look at those sections that you underline, that you highlight, and, and maybe more importantly, look at the sections that you don't. Uh, those ones that are a bit more uh, culturally com- confrontational or uncomfortable or disagreeable. And, and, and you know, I'll tell you this this morning, let's get into a secret, pastors are not immune to doing this either. I actually have a, a picture of a page of, of this Bible. Uh, this is one that I've read through a couple times. I've, I've underlined, highlighted, marked a lot. So this, you probably can't see it real well, but uh, this is Psalm 139, actually from this Bible. And uh, there are a number of sections that I have underlined every word. You can see I put them in a green box around them. In those green box sections uh, on there, every single word is, is underlined. I love those sections. Let me just read you a couple of, of those verses in those underlined sections. This is just sampling. For it was you who created me, my inward parts, and then it goes on, and you saw me when I was formless. All my days are written in your book, planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious are your thoughts to me. I underline all of those. But then you get down to verse 19 through 22, and that section of my Bible is sort of pristine white as a freshly fallen snow, not a, a single pencil mark or pen mark or highlight or an anywhere, and it begins with, God, if you would only kill the wicked... You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. And it ends with, I hate them with extreme hatred. Uh, I didn't highlight anything there, but then got to verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart and test me. Lead me in the way of everlasting life. And I underlined all that. Um, We all do this. We all do this. So the question for us this morning isn't how or isn't, you know, have I edited Jesus? But, but how and where have I done that? How have I begun to make God into my own image? Uh, the writer Anne Lamott had a friend who put it crisply this way, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> have we done this? Have you done this? Uh, does my life resemble Jesus of Nazareth or have I remade Jesus to resemble me 
And to begin this year, we're looking at the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And as we do that, we want to rediscover Jesus. We want to do the hard work of naming, putting aside, and questioning our assumptions, our preferences, our agendas about who Jesus is. And I've really been praying and asking God, would you help me to do that this year as we look at this book? And whether you're here this morning and you have followed Jesus for many years, uh, or maybe you're here this morning and you have walked away uh, from the church, but you're kind of checking it back out, you're kind of exploring afresh, or, or maybe you're someone who you've come to church really for your whole life, and you've heard people talk about a relationship with Jesus, or loving Jesus, or trusting Jesus, but you've just never, that's just never rung true for you. You want that, but it's just, that's not been, been true for you yet. Or maybe some of you are here, and you're just, you're just a little bit bored with it all. It's just the same old, same old, it's familiar. I like coming because of the people, but it's just, it just doesn't get me excited, it doesn't move me. Well, our goal together, wherever you're coming from, is to begin to understand afresh who Jesus is. And whether you accept him or reject him, my goal, my hope is that it would be the real Jesus that you accept or that you reject. The real one. Because oftentimes, as you think about the, the person that we reject or we're bored with or we're aspiring, isn't the real Jesus. Not, not the one that is recorded in all of the richness and fullness of who he was and is in the Gospels. Again, no matter who you are, as we walk through the gospel too, we have to be prepared to uh, feel uncomfortable because the real Jesus tends to do that for all of us, no matter where you're coming from. He tends to make us uncomfortable. But also, I pray that in this year that you would be excited, hopeful, awed in new ways by the real Jesus who is the most controversial and consequential person who has ever walked the dusty streets of planet Earth. So the question then for us this morning is, but how do I know, how can we know if we're following the real Jesus? That's, that's the, the crux of this. And like any good historical research, you have to seek out the most reliable people, the most accurate and contextual perspectives and accounts, and, and also, and this is really key, be willing to have a posture of following where the data leads. And that's what the Gospels are designed to do. And, and in particular, the Gospel of Luke uh, is designed to give us, to introduce us to Jesus through the eyewitnesses of those people who experienced, knew, listened to Jesus personally, who were eyewitnesses to him. And so if you're going to follow, if you're going to discover, rediscover the real Jesus, the first thing you have to do, and this is so important, is you've, you've got to listen to the people who knew Jesus. You have to listen to the people who knew Jesus. And, and Luke begins his account of Jesus with one long sentence. Uh, in, in our English Bibles, they usually break it up into at least two sentences. But in, in the original writing, that's one long sentence, verses one through four. Uh, New Testament scholar N.T.Y. has described these verses as a kind of a huge stone archway welcoming you into an impressively large building. Uh, this is the, the doorway to Westminster Abbey in London. A few years ago, we had a chance to go there and visit. And, and even the doors are so elaborate. And that's kind of what these first four sentences are. But they welcome you into this much larger, even more impressive building. 
you are immediately awed by the grandeur and detail just of, of the door and the entranceway as it calls you, beckons you into something bigger than itself even. And so that's what Luke is doing in these first four, four, four verses. He's giving us this archway. And he writes this in verses one and two. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's saying other people have done this work. There's other uh, writings, accounts out there among us. Just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now, the, even just the framing of those verses would indicate to any reader, especially a reader in the first century, that this was a serious, well-researched account. That's what Luke is presenting. He's not saying I'm writing a book of, of morals or instruction. I'm, I'm giving you a historical account of something that really happened. And one of the most important parts of what Luke says here is that little phrase, those from the beginning, who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And I want to pause and just spend some time on that phrase because it's the foundation for everything else that we're going to study in the Gospel of Luke. If we can't trust that what is being recorded about Jesus, his words, his teaching, his life, what happened, his death, his resurrection, uh, then we're always going to have sort of this, this undermining effect. So I want to Lucas wants us to, to trust that what has here actually happened. And this is crucial because Luke is saying he's got information from eyewitnesses who were with Jesus from the beginning. Well, in the past several decades, scholars like Bart Ehrman have popularized, I think, a misleading understanding that the Gospels and our knowledge of Jesus have come to us in a process that's kind of like a game of telephone. And this is what he writes as a sample of, of what... Bart Ehrman has written. He says, the first followers of Jesus told the stories. They got passed on and on and on for a long time, like a game of telephone. The, the message and the stories kept getting passed on and on and on. And eventually, some people who wrote those oral traditions down a long time after Jesus was dead. And so he concludes, we can't be sure what is true to the life of Jesus and what isn't. Luke's gospel, Ehrman claims, is mostly just Luke's opinion and very old tradition. And so the question for us, if we're following Jesus, is, is, is that right? Is what we have in the Gospels, and in Luke in particular, just Luke's opinion and some very old traditions? But I think this is actually far from right, and one of the finest examples of scholarship repeating this misunderstanding is the, it's kind of a magisterial work, but called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. It's a fantastic uh, work. It's 600 pages of, of careful scholarship and argumentation, uh, that says, look, no, this, this idea of kind of this telephone oral history that goes on and on and on and is so distant from the sources is just absolutely incorrect. And, and Bauckham makes uh, three key points. I'll try to summarize this morning so you don't have to read all 600 pages. At some point you want to dive in, you're welcome to. Um, but I'll try to give you just a short overview of, of Bakken's argument. There's three key points that he makes. The first is this, that the Gospels were written too early to be made up or changed in substantial ways. They were written too early for that to happen. Uh, the Gospels were, um, at least Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, were, were written 20 to 40, 25, 40 years after Jesus' death. And that means that many eyewitnesses of the events were still alive as the Gospels were being written, which means that you can't just make stuff up because there's people alive who saw it who could say, no, it didn't happen like that. Um, so, for example, today's 2020, 30 years ago was 1990, which is kind of like, wow, 1990 was 30 years ago. That seems crazy to me. Um, but 30 years ago is 1990. Let's say today I was like, I'm going to write a history of the Kansas City Chiefs football team. And I said, I'm just going to put it in there that they won the Super Bowl in 1990. 
Now, there are too many of you who were alive in 1990 who know that they went, uh, well, let's see, I wrote it down here, eight, seven, and one that season and didn't even make the playoffs. Like, you can't get away with, I can't write that about the Chiefs today. There's too many eyewitnesses who know it didn't happen that way. Even Coach uh, Marty Schottenheimer is still alive. You can track him down. He was, an eyewit- he was there. They didn't make the playoffs. So the Gospels were too early. It's too early uh, for them just to be made up or for massive things to be changed. They, they couldn't happen. Second, uh, the church revered eyewitnesses. And Bauckham points out that this language of eyewitnesses from the beginning and servants or ministers of the word, that's actually a technical phrase for the church. It's why in Acts chapter 1, which is also uh, recorded for us by Luke, when they're getting ready to replace Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, as one of the apostles, they say, we've got to find someone who was with us from the beginning, who saw all of these things, was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, his teaching, in particular, his resurrection. And this idea of ministers of the word or servants of the word, actually, scholars really think that was a particular sort of office in the early church of people, including the apostles, but others as well, who were specifically entrusted with safeguarding, recording, and recounting the the acts and the teachings and the life of Jesus. And one of the earliest Christian writings outside of the New Testament was written by a man named Papias, and he wrote of the early church and, and life of Jesus and in the prologue to his book, which was probably written in the late first century, he makes it clear that he has heard from two eyewitnesses of Jesus, a man named Ariston and John the Elder. And what's clear from Papias' writing that these men, these eyewitnesses that he talked to, were really key in the local church, and people traveled to see them and to hear and to listen and learn from them as direct eyewitnesses of Jesus. So in other words, there isn't a t- game of telephone going on in the early church. The people who knew Jesus, who had listened to his teaching, who saw him resurrected, people kept going back to those eyewitnesses. They kept going back to the source, not to the source of a source of a source. So those are the first two things. The Gospels were written early, the, the, the importance of eyewitness authority in the local early church. And then third, uh, Bakken makes the point that there are little unexplainable details all over the gospel. Um, and, and why are those certain details there? Um, and they wouldn't make sense to be there other than what you know, scholars, including Bakken, would argue. Here's one example. Most scholars say that the gospel of Mark was written first. And so, you know, Luke, even in his introduction, he mentions there's other accounts. There's other so Luke is using Mark's account as he's putting together his gospel. Just like if you're doing a historical research project, you're going to look at what else has been written on this person and incorporate that in. Now, you would expect, according to Bauckham, that when Luke repeats stories that Mark has included, that you would get fewer details um, rather than details being added in, because you have it recorded already in another place. That's the kind of the telephone idea is that you get more and more stuff added in as it goes along. You would expect to find um, Luke leaving material out. And in the vast majority of the cases, that is what happens. But, you know, Luke's gospel is 30% new material. It's not included in any of the other gospels. Because uh, he's telling new stories that haven't been recorded other places. But you get exceptions, So, for example, Luke tells the story about a man named Jairus. Well, Mark also includes that story, but Mark doesn't include the name Jairus in the story. So the question is, why does Luke name the man, but Mark doesn't? Why does Luke go through the trouble to add that name in in his account where Mark didn't include it? Well, again, this is 600 pages of stuff. Bauckham spends pages coming to this conclusion, but I'm just going to give you his conclusion, which is widely accepted in scholarly circles, that the only explanation 
is that Luke personally talked to Jairus, or that Jairus was a leader in the, in the early church, one of those eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And essentially what Luke is doing when he includes the name of someone in his gospel, he's citing his source. He's saying, I talked to Jairus. You can go talk to him too if you want to verify this account. He's citing his source. It's his footnote to the person who he got the story from, who was there. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, this is fine, interesting history, or maybe some of you are like, actually, Bill, this is not that interesting. Just tell me, why does this matter? Well, it matters because the Gospels are the best way to get to know the real Jesus. They are written by and they preserve eyewitness testimony of those who actually knew Jesus, who walked with him, who heard him, who were witnesses to his death, his life, his resurrection. Which means we need to get our view of Jesus from the Gospels. They are the most reliable source that we have for discovering the real Jesus. If you want to know, rediscover the real Jesus, you have to listen to those who knew him. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. If you want to discover the real Jesus, you have to look for the story first. If you want to discover the real Jesus, rediscover him, you, you've got to look for the story first. Notice what Luke writes in verse 3. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We'll get to Theophilus in a minute. Luke is writing an orderly account. In other words, he's writing a narrative. He's putting together a coherent narrative account of Jesus' life. He's taking all the events of, of Jesus' life, putting them into a coherent story, into a narrative. And if you want to rediscover Jesus, you have to look for the story first. Here's what I mean by that. Too often we approach the Gospels actually kind of like Jefferson did. Just looking for Jesus' moral teachings or looking for advice on how to live or, or inspirational sayings. Now, that's not a bad thing to do because Jesus was the most brilliant teacher who ever lived. We ought to read the Gospels looking for his teaching. How can we learn from him how life works best? All of that. But we need to look for the story first because the life of Jesus is not first a list of teachings to keep. Yes, it contains teachings, and we're going to look at a lot of those. Jesus lays out a way of life that we can follow that leads to flourishing and all that. We'll get to those. But Jesus is first of all, the life of Jesus is first of all a narrative about Jesus, the son of David, the true king, the Messiah, who came to seek and save the lost, who dies for the forgiveness of sins, who's raised to new life in order to raise others to new life, and he rules over history, and one day he's going to return. And this is incredibly good news because it means that salvation, rescue, is by grace through faith, not by obedience to advice. It's by grace through faith, not obedience to advice. And this is a completely different way to enter Christianity than any other religion. And I think oftentimes when someone or when we are asking the question, questioning Christianity... We say something like, but, but if I really start taking Jesus seriously, if I really commit to this Christianity thing, will, will I have to obey this teaching of Jesus? Or will I have to stop doing this thing? Or will I have to start doing that thing? I'm not sure about that. And, you know, and those questions, when they're asked you know, from an honest place of trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus, I mean, we have to wrestle with those, right? But I also think sometimes those questions are signs that we, we actually haven't encountered the real Jesus yet. 
Because you don't encounter him like any other person doing sort of a, a cost-benefit analysis of the relationship. Is he worth it? Is he worth the trade-off? It's not, it doesn't work like that. Because so when you encounter the story as advice, that's, that's where you get struck. Can I follow this advice? Do I have to follow that advice? But when you're struck by the power and the beauty and the truth of the story, you have an entirely different reaction to Jesus. It reminds me of a scene at the end of one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia stories, the, the horse and his boy. And uh, the climactic event is when the two main characters, they're, they're these horses, Bree and Huynh, they encounter Aslan the lion, who is the Christ figure in the stories. And when Huynh encounter Aslan for the first time, she's terrified. And yet at the same time, she's struck by the beauty of Aslan. And she says to him when she sees him, she just kind of stops and is first terrified, and then she just kind of walks toward him and says, please, you are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. And the story of Jesus has both this compelling beauty and this terrifying reality. And the first question is always, as we're walking through the Gospels, is not, should I obey this? Can I follow this advice? But who is Jesus and can I trust him? Who is Jesus and can I trust him? Everything else follows from how you answer that question. Because if Jesus is God and he can be trusted... And that reshapes how you, how you understand and think about all the teaching that he gives. But if he's not and he can't be trusted, then, then forget about it. You have to answer that first question. Who is he and can he be trusted? So if you want to encounter the real Jesus, first you have to listen to, the, listen to those who knew him. Listen to the eyewitnesses. Second, look for the story first. And then finally, you have to make it personal. You have to make it personal and that's Luke's whole point in, in writing this first and foremost to Theophilus, the, the person he, he names here at the beginning, but also then extension uh, to, to us as well. He wants Theophilus, he wants us, he wants you to have certainty, assurance, not only that these things are true, that they, they really did happen in just this way, but that you, that you personally can come to know and trust Jesus. But what does it mean to, to, to trust Jesus? We use that language a lot in church. Well, it's, it's like that team-building exercise, the trust fall. <laughs> you ever done one of these where, you know, you all your colleagues or teammates or whatever, they, they make this little kind of hammock thing and you fall back into it. And, but in that moment, the second you lean off of that platform, that's what it is. You're putting your trust in those colleagues to say, they are going to catch me. Because you, 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 here's the thing. I mean, I can do all this work to try to say, well, Jesus is really a real historical figure. He actually existed. But the goal of Christian faith is not just to acknowledge Jesus' existence as a fact of history, like you would George Washington or the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We're just acknowledging facts of history and say, yes, I believe that really did happen at a certain time and place. At some point with Jesus, you have to make it personal and say, I'm actually entrusting my life to that person. I don't just acknowledge that they existed in history, but I'm actually saying they, they are the one that I'm going to lean everything on, that they are my only hope in life and in death, that he is the, my only hope in life and in death. You have to actually expect him to catch you, to keep all of your life, your very heart, your very existence, everything that matters to you. 
And I think there are several things that make this hard, in particular in our cultural moment, hard to trust, hard to make it personal. First, I think one of the things that makes it hard is that we have so many options and so many distractions. Hey, we're, we're at a time and a place in, in globalization and access to the world where we have so many different religious options to choose from, so many good people out there with lots of great advice and wisdom to follow. Our world is a lot like the Cheesecake Factory menu, right? There are so many choices. It's overwhelming. And so why in the midst of that, why insist on the uniqueness of Jesus? Well, in some ways, that's what we want to look at throughout this entire series in the Gospel of Luke. But let me just see one thing that I think is compelling to say, singling Jesus out to say, we need to look at him in particular with a careful lens. And that is this, this claim of his followers that he rose from the dead. That he actually rose from the dead and continues to live today. If that's true, then it changes everything. If it's not, then, then we just kind of need to move on. But if you can say this person actually somehow defeated death, that he in his own body was dead as like really, really dead and then was alive again, you've got you to come to terms with what do, what do I think about is this resurrection of Jesus thing? Okay, second here, is this, there's just a lot of distractions, right? I mean, options to be entertained, things to fill our time. You can be in a deep conversation, even reading a, a book, say, you know, I'm going to sit down, uh, maybe you're going to, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily encourage it, but he's like, I'm going to sit down and read Bauckham this year, right? So you're reading Bauckham, and you're, man, your faith is being strengthened because you're thinking, wow, this is really historical. But then your phone buzzes, and you open up, and you look at the text, and then you click on Facebook, and all of a sudden you're, you're watching cat videos, and you don't even like cats. And, and Bauckham or your New Testament is... Now it's, it, your thoughts have gone a whole different direction. So there's lots of options, lots of distractions. Those things make it hard to make it personal. I think another thing, and this is where we began this morning, we want an agreeable Jesus. We read the Gospels and we have a hard time encountering him, trusting him because we make him look like us. And that's just not necessarily inspiring. But, but if he's just like me, do I really need him? I mean, I have me, and, and I'm, I'm pretty good with me. If Jesus is just there to affirm me, he'll, he'll at best be on the margin of my life. Like some, I think for some of us, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, as we can treat Jesus a bit like a cheerleader on the sidelines of our lives. He's just there cheering, telling us you're doing a great job, doesn't challenge us. Rather than having him in the position of, of a coach actually shaping us, training us, helping us live our lives differently, more in line with his design, we, we, just, we don't want him in that place. We don't want him to make us uncomfortable. We want him as just a cheerleader who's just excited about whatever's happening. But that makes it hard to, to really know him, to really actually encounter him. And, and we could name a lot of things, historical distance, the difficulties of cultural translation, all that. But a, th- a third thing here is it's hard to trust because I, I think sometimes for us, we're just, for many of us, we're bored with Jesus. 
You know, we've spent a lot of time in church. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you grew up in Sunday school and your imagination of Jesus has been shaped by, by flannel board lessons. You know, maybe, maybe you grew up with one of these. For those of you who didn't grow up in church, you're like, what in the world is that thing? Well, back before there was like PowerPoint and, you know, graphics and stuff like that on a computer, you used to learn Bible lessons by those like little kind of paper doll things that were like kind of this little felt fuzz and you'd stick them on a flannel board. And that's how you learn your, your Bible lessons. And in this particular Bible lesson, Jesus kind of looks like a white European lumberjack. Um, but that's our, our, so many of our imaginations have been shaped by things like this. They're two-dimensional. They're flattened out. They're cartoons. And Jesus was a real living human being who died and rose from the dead. So don't settle for the picture of Jesus that's the flannel board. Meet him afresh in Luke this year for who he really is and all of his humanness and all of his divinity and his humor and his love and his anger and his hunger and his tiredness and his incredible strength and patience and joy. Again, in this room this morning, there's like lots of us coming from lots of different places. And, and I just say, this morning, if, you're, if this isn't your story, if Jesus' story, if Christianity, if this is not your thing yet, maybe you're coming because your parents make you, or maybe you're coming because a friend invited you, I'll just say, will you investigate Jesus with us this year? Would you come with an open mind to say, I want to at least see where the data leads. Uh, if this is your story, you say, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I put my trust there. Would you be willing in this time, as we look at the Gospel of Luke, to, to have your view of Jesus challenged, reshaped, deepened, expanded, edited, to bring into line with who he really was, who he really is? And maybe if this has been your story, but you've gotten bored, you've drifted away, just say, will you look past the flannel board this year? We look past the flannel board to see who he really is. Well, like I mentioned at the beginning, I've been reading these presidential biographies, and I don't know that I've had a time in my life where I've read so many biographies sort of back to back to back, and something struck me recently about all these biographies. I just, sorry, spoiler, they actually, they all end the same way. They all end with the person, no matter how successful or famous or influential, they all end with the person getting sick and dying. Every one of them. And, and again, that, that's, that's obvious. And it's a good reminder because that's how my biography is going to end as well. It's how all of ours do. And it's actually how Thomas Jefferson tried to end his life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the final page. This is what it says. These are the final words of his life and morals of Jesus. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein never a man yet laid. There they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And if that's where Jesus' story really did end, then forget it. Like, don't come back next week. Like, seriously, I mean, I'm, if that's where it ends, like, don't come back. There's no point. Go do something else with your time, your energy, your money. Go have brunch. Do something else. 
get all that you can out of this life and, and, and don't waste another second with this Jesus and church stuff. If that's where it ends. Because that means that Jesus' biography ends just the exact same way as every other biography of anyone else who has ever lived. But maybe, just maybe, if there's a chance that Luke is right and you're willing to give him a chance to give you assurance that he is who he says, then come back. Continue to discover, rediscover the Jesus who rose from the dead, whose biography does not end like that, but ends like this. And just listen to these words. If you want, close your eyes just so you can focus on the words. Just listen to these words. The end of the Gospel of Luke. But on the first day of the week, at dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat here? And he gave them, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. And Jesus said, you are witnesses of these things. Would we, in the Gospel of Luke this year, listen to those witnesses? Would you entrust yourself to the risen one? And would you find life everlasting, both now and forevermore? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would do by the power of your spirit what only you can do, and that is to bring the realities and the truths of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and make it personal, make it alive in our hearts and our minds and in our lives. Lord, would you do that afresh for me? Because for, I know I've been guilty of, of just of getting bored, of being overly familiar, of not seeing Jesus for who he is and all of his beauty, and just he's just kind of the background noise in my life. Lord, would that not be true of us? Would that not be true of us? By the power of your spirit, would you bring us to a new and deeper understanding and love and passion for God who became human, who died and rose again. In Jesus' name, in whose name we pray, amen.